0: From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're just joining us, we're in a series going uh, through a deep dive through the book of Ephesians. This is an ancient letter written by a man named Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus, And he's writing to this church, this young church in Ephesus. If you've been tracking with us, Ephesus is a hyper-spiritual pagan city, and they were actually inundated with imperial worship. They worshiped Caesar as Lord and as God. And Ephesus, the church, was a young church. They were mostly Gentile people that had left their pagan roots. They had seen the, the truth and experienced the truth of Jesus, and so they turned from their paganism, and they turned to Following Christ. And so Paul is writing this letter to this young church about the superiority and about the cosmology of Jesus. And then in light of that, he's instructing them on what it means to be the church. Paul's method often starts with pointing people to the gospel, the good news, and then he moves on to good advice. And that's his pattern. What is our response in light of the gospel? Now, as I grew as a young pastor, I was influenced in ministry by those who tended to focus on good advice. In fact, I remember when I was really young and I was wanting some help with crafting and developing my speaking, I reached out to a more seasoned pastor in my church at the time, and I said, can you, can you give me some constructive criticism? And they, they told me it needs to be more practical. It needs to be more practical. Sermons sermon should always be practical. Now, many years later, as I reflect on that, I think there is a place for the practical. When we call ourselves disciples of Jesus and followers of Jesus, we are practicing the ways, the teachings of Christ. And so there does need to be practice. However, the problem, I think, in the church is we've become so practical that we've lost the gospel. We've become so f- focused on the what do I do that we've lost the power and the transforming work that happens in just receiving the gospel. The good news, the gospel is the power of God, not the good advice. The gospel is life transforming, not the pragmatic. The practical is the natural outflow of the gospel at work in us. Now, we do come, I believe we do come into a greater relationship with Jesus when I obey and I walk in obedience to his teachings, but that is from a place of being changed by the good news that Christ died on the cross for me. If we don't preach the gospel and we don't receive the gospel, then faith becomes shallow and it becomes a work based religious effort where we think obedience saves and goodness saves as opposed to Jesus, and that's not the gospel. Just so you know, newsflash, your goodness does not save you. I don't care how good you are, I don't care how nice you are, how compassionate you may open every door for every single person. God's not like, they opened five doors today, they get a closer seat. It's not the gospel. gospel isn't that God is happy with you and gives you a free ticket to heaven because you're a good person and you do the right things. The gospel is that God loves you and he sent his son to die for you and he's pleased with him and he's pleased with his atoning work and because of him, you get a free ride to eternal life. That's the good news. And with that, we'll pray and we'll close we'll go home. Father God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word, and as we draw attention to it today, speak to us. Let us be changed and transformed by your truth. Jesus, you are Lord. Let us see that. Let us see the areas in our lives where we've made other things Lord. Where there, let us see, God, the spirits that are at work seeking lordship over our life. So that we return from them and turn to you, true Lord and Savior. We bless you, God. We bless you for your word. We bless you for this letter. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins this deep dive into this letter with, with breaking down and opening up the good news of the gospel. He's spelling it out in the first few chapters. And then we come to this First of two prayers that Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. And Pastor Zoe introduced it last week to us, the, the first part of this prayer. And then we're going to laser in on the last part because it really hits home, the gospel. It starts in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this. We're going to start at 15. We're going to look really narrow at 20 and 23 For this reason, Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul says what we all say, I'm praying for you. Never say, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. But he continues. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What I love about this, as I was reflecting on it, is Paul actually explains what he's praying about. I believe that you bless someone when you speak the prayer out over them. And I believe that you proclaim to those rulers and those powers in the supernatural places, the lordship of Jesus, when you speak out those prayer blessings. So instead of just saying, I'm praying for you, I'm gonna pray that you are healed of that sickness. I'm praying that God would give you wisdom. I'm praying that an opportunity would open up. Speak out what you're praying. Let those demonic forces know that you're not just saying this cliche little term, but you're actually praying. Do you know what I did? I did this to someone the other day. Someone's going through something, not Christian person, um, loosely connected to Parkway. And they said, hey, would you pray for my family? I said, sure, let's pray right now. And they're like, well, I gotta go. I'm like, no, I'll take your hand. I grabbed her hand. I just began to pray. Now, I had a relationship. Okay, it's not just a stranger where I grab their hand and start praying for them. But let's pray right now. I'll be really quick. And I said a quick prayer. Nothing fancy, nothing special. But pray out loud. That's what Paul is doing. He's like, no, i just remembering you my prayers. And he says, he goes on. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparable great power for those For us who believe. And then he says this this is where I want to focus on. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Paul moves from this prayer for the Ephesians, right? That their eyes would be open, they'd be enlightened, and that they would have wisdom, and they'd know God better, and that they'd know this hope to which he's called them to, and they'd know his power to the why and how that's possible. He says that Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's far above all rule and all power and all authority and all dominion. Everything is under his feet. He is over all things. He's saying God put Jesus in the supreme position when he raised him from the dead. He's saying Jesus is Lord of life. He sits at the right hand of God on the throne and he has power. Pull back the curtain. Look at really who is in control, who rules over every? Authority, every power, every organization, every name that's lifted, everything that is spoken, everything that is proclaimed, he's above it all because he has all power and dominion and rule. And because of that, Paul prays, may your eyes be opened. May you have wisdom and revelation. May you know the power of God because of the position that Christ is in. That's good news. That's good news. New Testament scholar Timothy Gumbus called these verses 20 to 23 the thesis statement of this whole letter. So before we can walk out good advice, we have to know the good news. Like before we flip to Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 and we and we talk about what it means to be husbands and wives and people in the church and and all those kinds of things that Paul gets into in this letter, we gotta, we got to rest in. we got to be gripped by the good news. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification, which doesn't really work. I've tried it, been there, done that. I fail. And so do you. Right? Yeah. It's good news. Jesus is Lord. Now, in Paul's day, Caesar was Lord. Everything revolved around Caesar and the lordship of Caesar. That's what the Romans called him, Lord. It's a Greek word. I'm going to try to pronounce this properly. Korios. Corio, Korios. Korios. There it is. There's a little roll in the tongue. You got to be, you know, really good, <laughs> which I'm not. <laughs> but I laugh about it. It means sovereign one. It means final authority. It means last word. And for anyone other than, to call anyone other than Caesar Lord was treason. It had huge implications, political, economical, relational, sexual, spiritual. You'd get crushed in that society. Actually, you could be crucified for calling anyone other than Caesar Lord. But Paul's reminding the Ephesians, he's reminding us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the sovereign one. Jesus has final authority. Jesus has the last word. Caesar's a false god. Caesar is a false lord. He's a false sovereign one. He's a false final authority. He's a false last word. Though it appeared that he was Lord, he did have dominion, physical dominion. He did have rule, he did have power, and he did dictate how life went. But it was a it was a kind of false reality. It was one-dimensional thinking. And we can get caught up, you and I, in one-dimensional thinking when it comes to those kinds of things. For the believer, all that we see is not all there is. There's more than meets the eye. And Paul's been kind of doing or yeah, he's been unlocking that for us. He's been pulling back that curtain. For the believer, Jesus is the true sovereign ruler. And that was established at his death and his resurrection. He defeated the only enemy that was undefeated, and that was death. He conquered death. So what does that mean today? What does it mean in our everyday? It means Jesus is above all that you experience and you go through. It means that he has the last word and the final say. So maybe you're here and finances are looking a little bleak. Maybe the job is on the line. Bills are stacking up. Caesar isn't Lord. Money doesn't get the last say. Jesus is Lord. He's the final authority. Maybe the relationship is crumbling and harsh words have been spoken and deep hurts and cuts in the heart. Is it the end? Caesar isn't Lord. Lord. Jesus is Lord. He sits on the throne. He has the last say. Maybe your son or your daughter or your grandkid is in a messed way and nothing seems to be working. The devil seems to have had the last word. That's one-dimensional thinking. Because in the world I live in, in the reality I know, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. He sits on the throne. Sickness, disease, cancer, disorder, genetic mutation, nothing's helping. Nothing's working. The end is nigh. But Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. What am I saying? Everything you see and experience that is broken, that is fallen, that is sinful, that is evil, that seems to have the fingerprint of the devil on it, isn't the final say. Jesus is. When you look at our culture and you look at our world and you look at the things that are coming out, things that are happening, and it seems dark, and you're like, man, the devil's having his day. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is. So in their day, in the Ephesians' day, they had a ruler, quite literally a ruler, that dominated every aspect of life. They were called to worship this ruler. Everything seemed bleak for them. Everything was dark for them. Everything was difficult for a believer in Ephesus. But what Paul is trying to get their attention to focus on is guess what? We serve a sovereign one who sits over all rule and all authority. You just need to pull back the proverbial curtain and take a look and see who's there. Because it's not Caesar, it's not sickness, it's not broken relationship, it's not bills stacking up, it's not inflation. It's not government authorities. It's Jesus. Caesar is a false lord. Paul says that power that he wants us to know is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is invoked even Caesars. So let's talk about those rules and those powers. There's a new uh, Marvel TV series, if you're into that sort of thing, called Secret Invasion. And it's the comic book-based story-turned-show of this alien race that has invaded Earth secretly. Secret Invasion. <laughs> Catchy. The, this alien race known as the Skrulls have the ability to shapeshift. And so humanity does not know that it's been invaded. Every person that walks among them could be a scroll. In fact, there's those in high positions in, in leadership, in heads of state, military leaders, are in disguise, secretly plotting the demise of humanity so they can take over the planet. And mankind has to overcome these scrolls whom they cannot see to survive. And I was just thinking about that because the biblical worldview There are spiritual forces at work that desire to be lord of your life, invisible to your eye, but working in your everyday against you. Paul uses these terms, rule, authority, power, dominion, and they're used in reference to human beings, but they're also used in reference to superhuman beings, spiritual beings. At the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul says this in chapter 6. He says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not just human authorities. It's also spiritual authorities. It's not just human structures and and human organizations and institutions and political systems and governing authorities and economic systems and ideologies and social, social structures that we struggle with. Walter Wink was a, was a biblical scholar who suggested it like this. He says there's an outer reality or manifestation and an inner spirituality that make up the power. He says power is equal to or the power is equal to the outer manifestation plus the inner spirituality. And he said this. It's going to be on the screen for you. The powers, whether benign or satanic, always consist of an outer visible form, constitutions, judges, armies, leaders, buildings, and an inner invisible spirit that provides its legitimacy, credibility, and clout. An institution is more than the sum of its invisible parts. Our capacity to recognize the spirituality of institutions has left us tinkering with their parts while ignoring their essence. I am suggesting, in short, that the spiritual and the material aspects of the powers are inseparable but distinguishable components of a single thing, a power in its manifestations in the world. He went on to say, he said this, the issue is not whether or not we believe in them, but whether we can learn to identify our everyday encounters with them, what Paul called discerning the spirits. There's a French sociologist by the name of Jacques Loulx, who went on to describe the spiritual forces that the scriptures declare are at work in our world. Mammon, the prince of this world, the prince of this lives, Satan, the devil, and death. And he said all of these are characterized by their, all these names are characterized by their function. So will be on the screen for you. Money, power, deception, accusation, division, and destruction. Daryl Johnson is a guy that I'm reading his commentary on Ephesians. I'm largely using his stuff as we go through this. And he gave this example. He said, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And he goes on to say this. He says, money is what? It's paper and it's metal. It's metal. Debit cards and credit cards are plastic. Banks are policies and vaults and buildings and people trying to make a living. That's the outer manifestation of mammon. The inner spirituality at work is a real force, a power, a spirit, a God who wants to be lord of your life. He gave another example, more extreme. He said pornography. What is the outer manifestation of pornography? Magazines, films, photographers, editors, Models, all trying to make a living. Human bodies, corporate investors. What is the inner spiritual reality? Exploiting women and children. Inciting lust. False sense of comfort. Captivating your soul. There is a real power and a spirit, a God behind that who wants to be Lord of your life. All we see is not all there is. In the biblical worldview, What is before you isn't all that there is. There is more. Our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but powers and rulers. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, Caesar may call himself Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And he sits on the throne. And he is over every rule and every power and every authority and every dominion in those heavenly spaces, which means... Every spirit that is manifesting in an outer reality, in institutions, ideologies, social structures, organizations, money, business, people, groups. Above all of that, Jesus sits. Why do we get so fretful as believers when we see these ideologies that are coming out in our world? We start to, we start to, Get fearful. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? Our children, they're raised up in this. And we worry. But we're called to be people of the book. We're called to be people of Jesus. Not Jesus of Nazareth who walks, and I've said this a few times lately, on dirt roads as a rabbi teaching the good news. But the Lord of life who sits on the throne... And all the angels constantly, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, declare, holy, holy, holy is he. How can they do that? That's so long because he's right in front of them on the throne. You can't see that. Pull back the curtain, Paul says. Look at what's happened. He's defeated the enemies. And he rules over all of them and every name that is evoked. And like what I love what the scriptures say, not just in this present age, but the age to come. What does he mean? In all eternity, he gets the last say. He gets the last say. Paul prays for the people to know the power of God because that power defeated all powers. Would we know the power of God? Would our eyes be opened? I invite the worship team to come back up. Colossians chapter two, verse 15 says, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Spiritual forces, church, are seeking to be Lord of your life. They want control. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll see them at work. And if you take a moment to reflect on your life, you'll see where they are. And you know what? This is how cunning the enemy is. Often, I would say more often than not, they're not just the big things. They're not just the dark, evil things. You know, when I was a teenager, it was like parties and drunkenness and don't drugs. But anything can be a lord. Anything can be a God, family, kids, grandkids, that's not true, when they take the position of Christ. See, the enemy's desire is for you to serve anything but God, and if he can't get you wrapped up in some completely destructive thing to destroy your life. He will get you wrapped up in something that is seemingly harmless as long as it leads you to put that thing on the pedestal and the place and the platform and position that Christ is to be. Spiritual forces are seeking to be Lord of your life. They want control, but Jesus is truly Lord. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. Know God, know his power for his power defeated all powers, and now he sits over all powers. So now for some good advice. Now for some good advice. The word, the English word church, we get from a Scottish word called kirk, and that comes from a Greek word called koriakos, which means of the Lord. People of the Lord. How do we become people of the Lord? I've got a few things for us. Number one is we live in the word. Because the scriptures reveal the true reality. And the enemy will twist scripture. And if we are not in the word and we do not know the word, we will be deceived by even those who twist the word to say what it does not say. We'll we'll be deceived into believing one-dimensional thinking and seeing all that is before us as all that there is, that Caesar is Lord. But when we're in the word, we see that all there is is not all there is. There's more than meets the eye. And so I need to immerse myself in the word of God. Church, I know it sounds so fundamental, so basic. Here we go, another devotional talk. But if we're gonna be people of Christ, then we need to know the word of Christ. And there's a spirit, there's a power that seeks to get you away from the word so it will get you stuck on social media. There's a new one to suck you in, pull you out of this. Because for everyday people, when you open up your Bible, it doesn't hit the chemical sensors in your brain the same way scrolling on your phone does. And how many of you have got lost for an hour? Just, I know me. She was like, what are you doing? Nothing. What have you done? Literally nothing. Or you're like, well, I don't do that. Oh, you don't do that, but you pick up one of these and you do this. And you say, well, I've had a hard week and I need to just sit and relax. Absolutely, I'm not saying that you don't. We need rest. We need Sabbath. We're human. God designed us that way. But the spirit, the power, the inner spirituality that is manifesting in the outer reality is trying to pull you away from from this. Live in the word. Number two is live in community. Strength in the Lord comes when we do life with people in the Lord. And Sundays isn't enough, though unfortunately for many of us, it's all we have. And so maybe we need to make the most of this opportunity as we're with the people of the Lord. We need to make the most of every opportunity when we're with people of the Lord. You know, there's a saying we used to say as youth pastors when I was a youth pastor back in the day, and I think it's still around today, and people have probably said it forever, and it's like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You know, show me your five closest people and I'll show you who you'll become. You'll become the sixth, right? All these kind of cliches, but they're true. Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. How do I become a people of the Lord? I get with people of the Lord. And not just people who call themselves people of the Lord. Not just people who say I'm a Christian, because that can mean so many different things. I mean, people who love Jesus, Like people who love Jesus. Many people get in relationships, they're like, they're a Christian. What does that mean? They sit in a chair on Sunday? Or do they worship Christ? Like Do they worship Christ? Live in community. Number three is live in sacrificial love. Jesus' atoning work on the cross was sacrificial. He gave himself up for others. When we live in sacrificial love, we are declaring that Jesus is Lord, not myself. There's another spirit at work that tries to make you the center of your life. So I need to live sacrificially, which means I need to learn to say no to me and yes to others. And that's hardest when you don't want to do it. And so that means when you don't want to do it, those are the times you need to do it most. Those are the times you're really fighting against the spirit at work. You say, no, I'll say no to me and what I want, and what I desire, and I'll say yes to them. Even if the person, listen, even if the person does not reciprocate, you say, well, they never serve me or they never, I don't care, this is not about them serving you, this is about you and your relationship with Jesus. You wanna be people of the Lord, then you live in sacrificial love. You'll become more like Christ. Especially in those spousal relationships, those marriages. We try, well, they're not doing, Stop. Stop. Stop right there. You worry about you. You do. You do. You do. You sacrifice. You serve. Even if they never. Even if they never do. I hope and pray that they do, and I believe that they will be changed by your service, but even if they never do, you can stand before God and say, I lived like you lived in every arena of my life. Even in moments in my own home when my spouse would not serve or sacrifice for me, I did for them. Why, Jesus? Because when you on the cross, you sacrifice for people who would not sacrifice for you. That's what he did on the cross, right? He served people that would never serve him. Mm. Love your enemies. That's the message, sacrificial love. Number four is live in generosity. Share your money. <laughs> Giving and tithing breaks the spell that wealth weaves on our souls. And when we give, as I said earlier, we declare that Jesus is Lord, not our money. Number five is living communion. Pastor Zoe took us through this last week. When we take the Lord's Supper, we take the wafer, we take the bread, and we, and we take the cup, right? We take the wine. We are declaring that Jesus is victorious. We're declaring that he has won and he's coming back again. So we live in communion. That's not just this you know, religious act that the church does and we have to do once a month and we just do it and then we're gone and we forget about it. Like we get intentional about that. And, we, and when we do that, we declare that the Lord is coming back again. That's what Jesus said. And finally, number six, live in prayer. If you notice, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He doesn't just wish for them to know the power of God. He's not like, ah, guys, I wish that you know the power of God. He's like, I am praying for you to know the power of God. I am praying that your eyes would be opened. The early church couldn't do much more than pray. They had absolutely no political process. They had little resources. So they could not do things and in a social justice kind of manner to make great impact, yet they made great impact because they were people who prayed. Listen to what Walter Wink said. He said this. When the Roman magistrates ordered the early Christians to worship the imperial spirit of genius, Caesar, they refused, kneeling instead of offering prayers on the emperor's behalf to God. This seemingly innocuous act was far more exasperating and revolutionary than outright rebellion would have been. Rebellion simply acknowledges the absolute and ultimate nature of the emperor's power and attempts to seize it. Prayer denies that ultimacy altogether by acknowledging a higher power. Rebellion focuses solely on the physical institution and its current incumbents and attempts to displace them by an act of superior force. Prayer, on the other hand, challenges the very spirituality of the empire itself and calls the emperor's angel, as it were, before the judgment seat of God. I can, I can rebel, I can say no to, or I can pray to, this, to the God who rules over the spirit behind that force. There's a saying that, we, that you've probably heard before. It says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can do little until you've prayed. And for whatever reason, church, we have forgot the power of prayer. And this is like, I think my entire existence as a pastor has been reminding people the power of prayer. And myself, the power of prayer. Prayer changes things because God is moved by prayer, not wishful thinking, not nice thoughts. When we say, I'll send you some nice thoughts, that does little. It's a nice word. I will pray, and I won't just say I'm praying for you. I will get on my knees, and I will pray because prayer moves God, and God is all-powerful, and he sits on the throne, rules over every power. Therefore, if I want to be a person of God, I need to live in prayer. I need to live in prayer. Now, the implications of all this church is when we don't, are we people of God? Like, I'm not trying to challenge us in that way. God is love. God is gracious and he is merciful. But if I'm a a person of the body of Christ, I cannot just be by saying that. There needs to be things in my life, the practical, that shows the outflow of the gospel in me. If the gospel is effective and it is in my heart, then the outflow is practicing the way of Christ and living in the way of Christ. So what does that mean? means I know the power of God, my eyes to be enlightened, and I get revelation and wisdom as Paul prayed for, that regardless of what I see or experience, I will walk with Christ because he is life. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. Every day I'm declaring battle when I say that. Not just battle against some Spiritual force that I don't see, but battle against myself and my own nature that is striving to rule. Who is Lord of your life? That's the question. Is it you? Is it money? Is it your television? Is it your phone? Is it that political viewpoint? Is it that person? Is it that ideology? Is it that golf club? Oh, come on. (laughs) What is it? Fill in the blank. Is it that? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your work? Is it your job? Is it your success? Is it your image? Or is it Jesus? And the beautiful thing is when I put Jesus in the true position of Lord of my life, all those other things can be impacted exponentially in a blessed way. I now love my spouse to a greater degree and with a greater love because she's not the Lord, but God is Lord, and I have his love to now give to her. And I'm not putting her on a mantle that she can't you know, stand on, or my kids for that nature. I can love my kids, and a great, or grandkids, you feel, whatever it is. I approach work differently. I approach relationships differently. Why? Because I'm coming from this place where Jesus is the center, So let me leave you with this, and then we're going to sing that song, Ancient Days. Actually, would you stand? We're going to sing Ancient Gates. I keep saying Ancient Days. There's a song back in the day, Ancient Days, yeah? My inner kid is coming out back sitting in church and listening to those songs. I just thought as I heard that song um, being sung earlier that it really declared this, and so I feel like we just need to sing that again, but I want to leave you with this, and I'm going to pray and we're going to to sing. May you come to recognize who it is that is truly over all things. Who it is that sits at the right hand of the Father. May you come to realize that there are forces at work beyond the outer reality and manifestation. But Christ, through his atoning work, through his resurrection, disarmed and defeated those powers and reigns victorious. May you see that in Christ you are his you belong to him, and as such, you are free. So may you begin to live in freedom again. Freedom from the things and the Lord's, as they would be called, that so easily enslave you, and free to live as the people of the Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. And Father, we declare that and we align ourselves with the true reality that, Lord, you sit on the throne of all thrones, and you are above all things, and you are over all things in this present age and the age to come. Every ruler, every power, every authority, everything that is invoked, every name that is called upon you, rule over it all. Everything is under your feet, and we are yours. So we bless you, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we bless you and we honor you. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. In Jesus' name, Jesus is Lord. Let's worship. Thank you so much for listening.